If you would please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading. Uh, this is taken from uh, the, the, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8. And then we will turn to our sermon passage, Philippians 2, verses 12 to 8. But I'll begin reading uh, a little earlier in that uh, chapter. I'll go ahead and start reading at verse 1 of chapter 2 and read through verse 18. But our sermon passage will be Philippians 2, 12 to 18. But first, our scripture reading, Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8. Brothers and sisters, before we begin to read God's word, I just remind you about what it is that we're doing. We, we hold in our hands the word of God, and we are hearing God speaking to us as his word is read. And the Lord speaks to his people. He speaks to his church through his word. And you can take great comfort in that fact, even as God's word is now read to you. Ephesians, five, uh, sorry, Ephesians 6, 5-8. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now turning to Philippians chapter 2, I'll begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 18. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort uh, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in a full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to, and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This ends the reading of God's most holy and inspired, infallible and inerrant word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the commands that it contains. We thank you for the wisdom that you have given to us through it. And we pray that you would teach us 
what it means. We pray that you would teach us what it means for us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling while recognizing that it is truly and ultimately you who is at work in us. We pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would convict us and that you would give us the strength to act on our convictions. And so we pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but also his strength and his wisdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in that well-known passage that preceded our sermon passage this morning, Paul commanded the Philippian Christians to have this mind among themselves. And the mind that he wanted, wants them to have among themselves, he went on to describe in what is known in theological circles as the humiliation of Christ. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul gives another command. He speaks once again in the imperative. He tells the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this command is somewhat perplexing to Reformed folk like we are, who understand our salvation to be solely the work of God in the lives of his people. How does a Reformed Christian who believes in the absolute sovereignty of God work out his own salvation in fear and trembling? What does Paul mean? Well, first we need to understand that Paul is further unpacking. He is more fully helping his readers to understand what it means to have the same mind as Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves by becoming servants. Our passage begins in verse 12 with the word, therefore, which is a conjunction that is used to draw conclusions from what has previously been written. And so, so Paul is continuing the thought, therefore, because Jesus Christ did all this stuff, because you're supposed to have this mind, therefore... Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Sinclair Ferguson writes that there is a logical connection between the work of Christ and the life of the Christian. Christ obeyed. He was obedient to his Father, even though that meant going to the cross. Paul underlines the obvious implication. Those who are in Christ and who belong to him must be obedient. After the therefore, in verse 12, Paul calls them his beloved, which again is evidence of the abiding love that he has for his Philippian brothers and sisters. He loves them dearly. And then he says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, Paul is not flattering them here. He is instead reassuring them by reminding them of their past obedience. He does this to encourage them to be obedient in what he is about to command them to do. He's saying to them, I know that you can do what I'm about to command you to do because you have done everything else. He's, oh, they've always been obedient in his presence. He wants them now to be obedient even though he is absent from them. And in fact, he's telling them to be obedient all the more so in his absence. And the specific obedience to which he is calling them here is to work out their own salvation in fear and trembling. And so, again, the question arises, what in the world does Paul mean that the Philippians are to work out their salvation? Isn't Paul firmly set against salvation by works? Wasn't it Paul who said, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. How can he say to the Philippians that they must work out their own salvation? 
Well, one commentator writes, while Paul rejects salvation by works, for him, obedience remains critical to living out a saved life. In other words, sanctification. And so the commentator, he points to sanctification. And when we think of our salvation, typically we think about justification. And, and, and sometimes exclusively justification. It's perhaps the first and the only benefit of, of salvation that comes to our minds. Justification is a punctiliar one-time act by God. Sanctification, however, is a progressive work of the Holy Spirit. Justification is like ending a sentence with a period. That's it. Period. It's over. Sanctification is like ending a sentence with an ellipsis. Dot, dot, dot. There's more to come. It's not finished yet. And so upon regeneration, at the moment you are regenerated, you have been converted that moment of regeneration, you stand justified before God. And there's nothing that you can do to add to or subtract from your justification. But you still have your remaining sinfulness, the residue of sin to deal with. And that's where the process of sanctification comes in. So Paul here, he is not uh, talking about things in the category of justification. He's talking about things in the category of sanctification. And with regard to sanctification, you have some, some involvement there. You are justified, but you haven't been perfected yet here on earth. And so sanctification is the process by which, by which you are made perfect over the course of your life. But, and we have to say this very quickly there, perfection will not happen until you go to be with the Lord or until He returns. You won't be perfected until that point. Because you have been regenerated by the grace of God, you now have the responsibility to be obedient. And Paul says you should do so with fear and trembling. Paul uses the same phrase in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, where speaking to slaves, he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And Paul also gives specific instructions to the masters of slaves, telling them in verse 9 to stop their threatening. But there seems to be more than simply a superficial connection between these two passages, Ephesians 6 and Philippians 2. When Paul tells the Philippian Christians to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, he is calling upon them to be obedient to their master, Jesus Christ, much in the same way that he tells slaves in Ephesians 6 to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling. The follower of Jesus Christ, in the follower of Jesus Christ, with the follower of Jesus Christ, there's no place for haughtiness, for arrogance, for pride. We are living this life, we are, we are working out our sanctification, and we're doing so with humility. Paul seems to be making an allusion in both Philippians and Ephesians to Psalm chapter two, Psalm two, verse eleven, where we read, "Serve the Lord with Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling." Paul uses the phrase "fear and trembling" four times in his letters, including our passages in, in Philippians and in Ephesians six. But outside of Paul's writing, it occurs only once in Mark chapter sixteen, verse eight where it describes the response of the women when they arrive at the empty tomb. Now think about that for a moment. These women, they get to the, the empty tomb of Christ, and what is their response? It's one of fear and trembling. 
astonishment, awe, wonderment, what's going on, but fear and trembling. And so what Paul means is that the Philippians, as they work out their salvation, as they participate in their sanctification, they should do so out of reverence for God as they live their lives under his gaze. I mean, think about that for a moment. Are you or are you not more obedient to the Lord when when you're more consciously aware of his presence with you? As you live your life before the gaze of God, understanding that he sees everything, he knows everything. As you you work toward, toward an awareness of that fact, do you tend to be more obedient or not? Well, children, think about this for a moment. Your mom or your dad or both have told you to do something. Go, go upstairs and clean your messy room. Are you more prone to do it when you know they're downstairs doing whatever they're doing in the kitchen or outside doing lawn work than you are when they're standing in the doorway of your room watching everything you do? What's, what's the tendency there? Our tendency is, is to do things when we're under scrutiny. To be a little more obedient. And, and Paul is reminding us, not that God's gaze upon us is a, is a threatening gaze. Not, not in the way that a, that, a, that a slave master looks down upon those who belong to him in that way. But Paul is reminding us that our Heavenly Father is watching us. And we are to be obedient to him. We are to, to reverently obey him. So the Philippians and we, we are responsible to work out our our own salvation in reverence to God. But verse 13 makes it clear that God is working it out with us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that a relief? You start to feel a little bit of weight. Oh my goodness, I'm supposed to work out my own salvation. I'm supposed to sanctify myself. That Paul comes in in verse 13. To provide the resolution. It's God who's working in you. And so what Paul means is that God the Holy Spirit is working in you so that you have the will and the power to do what is pleasing to God. If he were not at work in you, you would have neither the will. You wouldn't desire to do what is pleasing, nor the power, the ability to please God. You wouldn't have any interest in it if the Holy Spirit weren't living in you. And so verse 13 shows undeniably that God is the one who does the saving. He is the one who is at work in you. And so putting verses 12 and 13 together, what you have is a picture of human responsibility alongside God's sovereignty. That's part of the Reformed faith. God is sovereign. But that doesn't mean that humans aren't responsible for their actions, that we're not responsible for our sins. God is sovereign. And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are called to be obedient. You are called to take action and do what the Lord commands you to do. Verses 14 to 16 then give an idea of how we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, Paul might have said many things regarding how they were to work out their salvation But he chose to zero in on these two issues, grumbling and disputing. And verse 14 contains another command. Do all things. Here we have. Do all things. Be obedient in this way. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. 
Apparently, he is shining a light on the particular problem that had arisen in the Philippian church. He wants them to humble themselves. He loves them, it's clear. He loves them. He wants them to humble themselves. But there's a problem they've got. They grumble. They complain. They dispute. But even though this is a particular problem for the Philippian church, it's universal. This is a problem that all fallen human beings suffer from. Including the people of God. Now, grumbling in particular is a word that's used to describe God's people in the Old Testament again and again, especially during their 40 years of wilderness wandering. Grumbling is the mutinous murmuring of people who are dissatisfied in those who are leading them. In Exodus, the people grumbled against Moses, but ultimately they were grumbling against God. You remember God provided manna and quail for them every day except the Sabbath, but they received a double portion of each the day before. Even so, they grumbled. The Lord didn't provide enough food for them. They were sick of the food God provided for them. They wanted to go back to the land of Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery so that they could have what they regarded now as wonderful, delicious food. Paul says that the Philippians are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then he continues in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, I don't know how it is in other areas necessarily, but in the military, particularly in the Marine Corps, grumbling, complaining, it it, it is an art form that, that has been developed there. And it's funny because the grumbling and complaining, it happens with a smile on the faces. And so there's, there's a little, almost a joy, a perverse joy that is, that is, that is, uh, that is elicited when, when we get to grumble and complain about everything. And Marines would grumble and complain about every possible thing they could possibly think of. It really did turn into a competition. The problem with grumbling and complaining, the other branches may be the same. I'm not sure. It's, the Marines tend to just take everything to the, to the ultimate possible limit that they can be taken to. So, so I, I don't know how it was in other branches. The problem, however, is that the grumbling ra- rarely stays with one person. It spreads. It, it's cancerous in that way. And that's why, okay, in the military, it's, it's all right. You want your military to kind of be mad, <laughs> I mean, if they're going to be effective, you want them to be angry. So that when you turn them loose, <laughs> as long as they're angry at the right people, they're, they're, they're doing what you want them to do. In the church, that's not a good thing. In fact, it's, it's, it's very bad for people to just be angry all of the time. And if you're, if you're a, a, a highly online person, if you're, if you're in, in the social media spaces really at all, and you, and you start to read things about, you know, there, there are terrible things that have happened in the church. But then there is all of this grumbling and complaining that just, that just grows up around it and becomes almost its own separate thing. And we are being commanded here as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are to do so without grumbling and complaining because it is, it is counterproductive. It does the exact opposite of what we're being commanded to do. Why is this? Because our grumbling, all of it, ultimately is grumbling against God. You may not think so. 
You may think you're just grumbling against those people who are in authority over you, whether that's church authority or, or state authority or your boss at your work or, or whatever it may be. But ultimately, you're grumbling against God. That's not to say that there's no place for a righteous complaint that needs to be raised. That's not to say that at all. It's not to say that you can never raise a complaint about something that's happening to you. That's not it. I think, I think we all understand the type of grumbling that is being talked about here. But if we believe that God is sovereign, then we know that all things that happen take place according to God's plan. Charitably, we could say that grumbling is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. However, that acknowledgement of God's sovereignty is coupled with a lack of faith either in God's intelligence or in His goodness. We grumble either because we think we know better and could have planned it better than God Himself or because we think God's plan is less than good. And, And I'll just say it, we think His plan is evil. That's why if we grumble against God or complain about Him, we will neither be blameless nor innocent, as Paul says. But Paul continues saying that they, that they may be the children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Grumbling and complaining, Paul is saying, this is, these are the marks of those who are in the world, not in the church. Grumbling, grumbling and complaining ultimately does nothing. It just brings everybody else down around you. And so the church, which is comprised of those whom God has adopted into his family, must not bear the marks of the crooked and twisted generation by whom they happen to be surrounded. Instead, the church should shine as lights in the world. Light in the darkness immediately calls attention to itself, and it does so because it stands in stark contrast to its surroundings. A church that looks like the surrounding world won't be a church for much longer. Now, it's very tempting to blend in with our surroundings. It's very tempting to, to put on the camouflage that, that, that makes us look similar to the world around us. But if blending in means that we think like the world thinks, we behave like the world behaves, we've got a problem. The church is made out of those who have been called out of the world. Grumbling and disputes, these are characteristics of a crooked and twisted generation, not of followers of Jesus Christ. But in contrast to grumbling and disputing, Christians are, in the words of verse 16, those who hold fast to the word of life. That word, holding fast, it can also be translated holding forth, as it is in the King James Version. And so it could be that Paul was deliberate in his use of a word that's ambiguous. Holding forth the word of life fits well in the overall context of the book of Philippians in which perseverance is emphasized. Rather, let me, I got that backwards. It fits well in the immediate context where Paul has just told them that they may shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life fits well in the overall context of a book, the book of Philippians, in which perseverance is emphasized. And so it may well be that Paul intends it to be taken in both ways. Hold forth, hold fast to the word of life. In the second half of verse 16, Paul writes, So in that day, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, Paul had just referred to the day of Christ in different language back in verses 10 and 11, where he referred to the time time when, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On that great day, that last day, the day of judgment, 
On that day, Paul is saying, he would like to be reassured that his labors in Philippi weren't in vain. In other words, he wants to see the Philippians that they have indeed held fast to the word of life. Paul knows that his life hangs in the balance. And it does so because of his evangelistic efforts. Because he preached Christ crucified. And there were people in Jerusalem who weren't happy about it. And they wanted him dead for it. He is happy to live his life, to give his life rather, for the people to whom he's ministered. That's what he means in verse 17. Even if I'm about to be, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Here he's referring to the Old Testament practice of pouring out wine to accompany the main sacrifice as commanded in Numbers 15. He is happy to be sacrificed alongside of the Philippians. He just hopes to find out on the day of Christ's return that his sacrifice wasn't in vain. But even if he is being sacrificed, he says at the end of verse 17, he is glad and he rejoices with them all. And then he finishes out our passage with two commands in verse 18. He commands them to be glad and to rejoice with him. A grumbling and disputing heart, it leaves little room for gladness and joy. Conversely, a glad and joyful heart leaves little room for grumbling and disputing. And if you stop to think about it, there is really very little that should cause us to grumble. Jesus Christ lived for us. His perfect obedience is counted as our own. He died for us, and His sacrifice on the cross has cleansed us from sin and has broken the bonds of slavery that held us captive. Your record of sin was wiped clean. But even more than that, He has given to you the Holy Spirit who dwells in your hearts if you believe in Him. And the Holy Spirit is at work sanctifying you, working out your own salvation by giving you the will and the power to be obedient to Him. And so, brothers and sisters, it is the case that all of the commands that you and I have been given, we have been given the Spirit of God to be able to obey those commands. So that, as God works in us, He gives us the will to work for His good pleasure. And He gives us the credit It's counted as our own. He has done and is doing this all for us. Therefore, our gratitude, out of gratitude rather, we ought to be obedient to Him. Our obedience to God is a marker that we are children of God. Our obedience to God shines forth as a light in a dark, crooked, twisted world. Our obedience doesn't save us, but it's evidence of saving faith. Our obedience... Our working out our salvation, it is a grateful response to God's work of salvation for us. It gives us assurance that we are indeed saved because our obedience is proof that God is working in us and through us and for us. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you that he is working in us, he's working through us, he gives us power to do that which is obedient. And we are thankful that he seeks to take none of the credit, but give all credit to Christ and to us. Lord, we are thankful for the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. His active obedience and his passive obedience, his active obedience as he, as he obeyed every single command 
that was given to us. He obeyed it for us. He was obedient to you in every way. We're also thankful for His passive obedience on the cross where He gave Himself up to be sacrificed in our place. Lord, we pray that You would teach us to be grateful for Jesus Christ, for His death and for His resurrection from the dead. And we pray that out of, out of gratitude that You would help us not to grumble but to be obedient. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.